Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? It's been great. Yeah, I went to a play last night, a classical Christian school, a local uh, to us. Fiddler on the roof. So we've Classic. all been been yelling tradition all day tradition tradition so and but uh really greatly great great uh, performance so classical christian schools there's something to them right yeah absolutely yeah we've had a great week the last couple of days it's been in the 70s so all of a sudden we're sitting pretty on the weather now next week is supposed to be back down to 40 something during the day and 27 overnight so we're not out of the woods yet but uh, it's been fun to enjoy a little bit of real spring weather and kind of gives you that optimism that you need this time of the semester to just kind of keep plugging away through those last five or six weeks. Yeah, same here. It's mid 80s today and sunny. And then tomorrow there'll be some clouds, but there's this great river that runs through this town next to us called New Braunfels, called the Colmel. And it stays at this constant 72 year round, which is like ocean weather in Maine and like July 15th. So you get a, get a beautiful day like today, and it's just great to go down there. You really feel like it's the middle of summer. Well, leading off this week, we're going to talk about President Biden's first press conference yesterday. And uh, the two big topics that were discussed and dominated the questions and answers were the border and the filibuster. But before we get into that a little bit, I guess my first impression was that it was somewhat remarkable how partisan President Biden can be when he's off the script. And so when, you know, he's, when he's got the prepared speech, emphasis on unity and, and all the rest, but you know, he accused President Trump of starving children in the Mexican desert, I mean, literally, right? I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that. That's right there on the transcript. He said that Republican state officials were wanting to make voting laws that were worse than Jim Crow, that they would make Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Uh, he said the Republicans were against the federal budget deficit whenever it was saving people's lives, but we're for it when it's feathering the nest of the wealthiest Americans. So these aren't exactly the kind of moves you're making when you're trying to build unity. This is the kind of straw man caricature we're only used to in our politics. Plenty of that on both sides. But if, if your emphasis is unity, this isn't how you portray your opponents. Um, so he, he also claimed that while he's had a hard time unifying the Congress, he's really united the country that Republican voters are with him in, in significant numbers, even if Republican politicians aren't. Now you look at his latest approval ratings, I'm not sure he can exactly pull that off. The average number on real clear politics is 53 uh, approved, 43 disapprove. And the most recent poll had him with 90% approval from Democrats, 52 independents and 15% of Republicans. So I think there's still some work to do in persuading Republicans to, to join the cause. And it's probably not going to be helped by some of the things he was saying yesterday about the border and filibusters. So let's let's turn to those topics, at least briefly. On the border, his basic argument was he'd inherited a problem from President Trump, that what's happening there is just sort of an annual event, nothing, nothing new. Of course, steps to be taken. He's in the middle of taking those steps, and he'll let the press back in when, when he's taken those steps and when things are improved. In the meantime, trust him. He's got the right intentions and the right policies. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting is I, I read at the beginning, I didn't get to hear the press conference because it was the middle of the day, but I read the transcript thereafter. And 
President Biden identified himself as someone who really just kind of kind of wants to solve the problems that are out there, that that he is a pragmatic uh, problem uh, solver. And I, I think that, you know, that plays with a large swath of the American people. You, know, you want someone who's pragmatic, but there are different ways that you can be pragmatic. You, you can be a partisan pragmatic, as, as you mentioned, the attacking the other or more uh, a civil uh, a pragmatic approach uh, or a bipartisan uh, pragmatic approach. It doesn't seem to me thus far, 60, 70 days in, that he thinks that he needs to be that latter type of pragmatist. Uh, maybe that'll happen later on if there's, there's some more blowback. And you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what are the pragmatic solutions to the border? Uh, the, if the problem is something that's very visible or tangible, a pragmatic solution would seem to require something where you could actually see that a good difference is, is happening there uh, in the policy change. And the only difference I think that we've seen over the last two or three months is not where the problem has gotten better, but the problem has gotten worse. And I think that it's not going to go away. And you can say that uh, it's easy to solve, but if it continues to happen, there's a reason why it's happening and that will catch up with them on that specific issue. And now on the filibuster, of course, Joe Biden, longtime defender of the filibuster, some argue that the, the speech he gave in 2005 on its behalf is perhaps the best speech anyone ever gave in defense of the filibuster. Uh, but now he's beginning to hedge his bets a bit on this. Uh, on the one hand, he doesn't want to say he's for getting rid of the filibuster just yet, but he definitely says he wants to reform the abuses of it. And he seems to be at least open to a suggestion that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has suggested, which is that you require people to uh, actually filibuster in an active way. So, you know, it used to be, of course, you think about uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or the kind of classic examples of filibuster. Well, it means you're talking, right? You're talking and maybe it's a group of people that are talking, but you've got to keep the floor and you do that and you, you keep talking about the issue or you start reading the phone book or whatever you do, but you keep it going. And while you're doing that, of course, nothing's happening. This is, you know, you're, you're controlling the Senate floor. No votes can be taken on other measures. All Senate business is stalled until either you stop talking or they force you to stop talking. Now, some years ago, that was changed. So now you can, in essence, filibuster something without doing anything. You just sort of announce you're filibustering it. And that puts a pause on that particular vote or that particular nomination or bill. And meanwhile, other Senate business can proceed. And so what Manchin's saying is we gotta go back to that filibuster that requires you to do something. Now, in my mind, it's not so much the talking that matters, it's the fact that it stops other business because it creates a, a perverse incentive to just sort of filibuster anything if you don't have to stop Senate business, right? If, if all the bills you like can keep going through while you're filibustering the things you don't like, there's gonna be a lot of filibusters. But if you have to stop everything to filibuster, well, you'll probably wait until it's really important and you'll filibuster when it's a matter of critical policy or it's, it's something that you think really demands the attention of the public. But on a smaller matter, you won't be willing to give up uh, the activity that you have to give up in order to allow that filibuster to proceed. So I, I, I can see the merits, honestly, of, of that kind of a reform that forces a, a price upon the filibuster while retaining the filibuster. Now, at the same time, President Biden warned Republicans that if we get, quote, complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, 
then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. So, so he's not committing anything permanently to preserving the filibuster or even to reforming it along the lines that Senator Manchin is, is suggesting, uh, but he's willing to blow the whole thing up apparently if Republicans get in the way of too many of his bills. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how stalemate or compromise equates with chaos. You'd think it'd be the opposite, right? And this is what <laughs> pragmatism is. Uh, pragmatism is, a, at least in its American form, is a, a way of philosophy that suggests that it is the chaotic that's problematic. That's why uh, change is good. However, incremental change is better. Uh, the filibuster, kind of as understood in the 19th century, would have produced that incremental change. It would have guarded against uh, the legislative branch kind of going with the ways of the wind. So it's, it's really interesting going back to this idea. Do you, do you want to be a pragmatist or do you want to hit a grand slam every week for the progressive agenda? And that's something that the Biden administration is going to have to answer to and answer for. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Um, I've had this question asked to me by a multitude of people, you know, what do you think is going to happen with the filibuster? And, you know, it's, it's a really rough position, right, that we're, we're resting upon Senator Sinema in Arizona and Manchin in, in West Virginia to kind of to have a hold on this. And if one Republican goes by the wayside, like Elisa Murkowski, um, you know, we're in trouble. So it's, it's not as if this thing is a done deal that we can count on it. So and, and I, th I think it's just if the last 60 days are a reflection as to what the Biden administration hopes to accomplish between now and the next national election in 2022, I, I don't think this is going away. I think it's going to be front and center and we're going to be slowly brought into this. Okay. We're doing away with the filibuster uh, two, three, four weeks from now. All right. Well, that's certainly an issue we'll be coming back to. I'm sure. I don't think, as you say, the filibuster debate is going to die anytime soon. And of course, every federal law that is proposed that is perhaps slowed down by Republican opposition will be then presented as an occasion for ending the filibuster. And so we'll be moving from, from crisis to crisis, if not chaos to chaos. Let's turn now to the required reading, Dave, and take a look at our next section of Democracy in America, Volume 2, Part 2. Yes, so we've gotten through the influence that democracy exerts over our intellect, and now he turns to the influence that democracy exerts over our sentiments, over our passions, over the things that we love. And the way that I always set up this part of my coverage of Tocqueville for my classes is I have students read the, the beginning of uh, chapter one, where Tocqueville points out this idea that you can imagine an extreme point at which freedom and equality touch each other and intermingle. Uh, this is the ideal toward which democratic peoples tend, the most complete form that equality can take on earth. And my mind at this point where he's talking about uh, these two things, touching each other, freedom and equality, or intermingling, uh, automatically turns to kind of the, the geometry of it all, the intersection of freedom and equality. So what I usually do here is I'll, I'll draw an X uh, axis, horizontal axis, uh, left to right, and then a Y axis uh, vertically, uh, top, top down. And I'll say, well, what has Tocqueville really argued here about freedom and equality up until this point in the work? And the beginning of the work, we remember, Matt, he said that, you know, one thing that you can count on moving forward is that the generative fact of all things is the equality of conditions. So moving left to right, 
uh, on the x-axis, uh, we move from a time of inequality, uh, the older Middle Ages, to a time of equality. Things are becoming more equalized. And I think the central question of the book, and we've referenced this multi multiple times, is are we moving in a better uh, direction? Are we moving up uh, as we become more democratized and as we become more equalized? Or will we move lower uh, in terms of our level of flourishing? Freedom being at the top of the y-axis, servitude at the bottom. And I think that Tocqueville's great fear is that a lot of people hope that as things become more equal, as this grand rush of equality makes its way forward in world history, left to right on that x-axis, that with equality will come liberty. And yet he fears, he wants to look further than the parties, he fears that that same equality will lead to servitude. So the proponents of democracy say equality equals liberty. The antagonists say uh, equality will equal servitude. Tocqueville's open to equality being a good thing, but he's got to harness it in the right direction. And as we learned in part one of volume two, the thing that he's trying to harness is the democratic mind, is the democratic person. So if you took a, and I'm really good at this in class, I'm sorry, I can't do this on the podcast. If you took on that X, Y axis and you wrote a stick figure, a human being, the question is, how does that I, how does that individual move forward across time? As we become more individualistic, as we begin to think, I think, therefore I am, is that something that's going to tend us towards freedom or tend us toward servitude? He's going to answer this right at the beginning of his coverage by saying the following. Individuals have a greater taste for equality than they do for freedom. Why? Well, freedom is easier to lose, he says. Freedom compromises tranquility. Freedom brings goods over the long term. Quality brings immediate results. Freedom produces sublime pleasures, but equality produces a multitude of little enjoyments. Freedom requires sacrifice. The pleasures that brought on by equality offer themselves. All of these things, Matt, suggest to Tocqueville that that individual who might choose freedom is more easily drawn to equality, is more easily drawn to the benefits that equality produces. Yeah, and I think there's a number of different directions we can go with that, but one of them is, let's, let's suppose you're like de Tocqueville and you genuinely cherish liberty and you're a political leader who wants to lead a people that loves equality in the direction of liberty to make that equality consistent with liberty. Well, it's, it's not going to work, de Tocqueville's arguing, for you to be an enemy of equality. You're going to have to show the people that their first love can lead to liberty, that their first love rightly realized will actually achieve freedom rather than servitude. And they're gonna have some inclination in that direction. You know, you're not gonna be fighting them on that point, but if you try to take on equality and argue that that's what's threatening liberty, you're not gonna get anywhere. So you have to be a genuine friend of equality that wants to show people how that equality can be made compatible with the fullest realization of liberty and, and especially with self-government. 
Yeah. And part of the problem, right, if we're dealing with individuals, and he notes this in the second chapter, is that, you know, we've, we've been selfish. We are, as mankind, we tend to be selfish. But he says in a democratic age, we're going to be more likely to be individualistic, which he calls a reflective and peaceable sentiment where we kind of reason through why we should care about ourselves rather than other people. And the problem, right, with individualism, he calls kind of a, a new democratic um, uh, a tendency, is that individualism at the end of the day makes you reflectively cut yourself off from others. Uh, to, it makes you tend to isolate your own person from others. And as we're going to see as we read through this part of the book, isolation, even with greater equality, tends towards despotism. And you have to move beyond your isolation to get real freedom and liberty. Yeah. And so once you embrace this individualism, there's really two political dangers that can follow from that. One is you just withdraw because you don't really want to get involved in the public square. You enjoy your friends, your close circle of associates, and there's not really anything that leads you into public concerns. And it's not that you're against it, uh, against doing things for the, for, the, for the common good, but you're just not interested. You're not, you're not drawn to that, not forced into that. Um, but if you are, then of course the danger is that you're so focused on yourself individually or those like you as a group of individuals that you're only gonna pursue factious actions in the public square, those things that, that benefit your, your group rather than some kind of common good because you sort of take the individual as, as the essence um, of, of political life and the elevation of you as the most important individual as, as the political as well as a political project of your life. Yeah, and I spent a lot of time in my classes, Matt, on 20th century American political thought. Uh, and one of the things that always troubles me early on in the 20th century is that that which conservatives bring forward to combat progressivism is an individualism that doesn't lead people into the public square, but leads them into the wilderness. They want to remove themselves or tend to remove themselves uh, from that important civic or political activity uh, that allows you to give a full expression uh, for liberty and, and freedom. Uh, so here, Toko was gonna tell us that the best way to combat individualism is with free institutions, uh, free associations, newspapers, people communing with one another, making the case for liberty, making the case uh, for independence. But if all you care about or what you tend to do is want to get away from that fray by having the longest driveway, then what you're going to happen, what's going to happen, I, I would say, is that you might be in your basement uh, railing against the powers that be, but you're not producing uh, the good that, that you could produce if you were there making a good case in the public square. And here, it's kind of funny when I mentioned that, because when I was running for political office in New Hampshire, what was always so uh, interesting to me is that most of the progressive politicians and the progressive votes tended to be within a two-mile radius of each of the towns within New Hampshire. And then you'd go to the rural places and you'd see all the union leader mailboxes where people live far away from, from others. And Republicans did quite well in New Hampshire, but I always wondered how much better Republicans would do if they entered into the Exeter Town Square, uh, maybe not Durham or Hanover, but some of these other places. <laughs> 
And uh, it was just great this week. We have a great, great listener from New Hampshire named Mike Doherty, and he's reading through and, and um, read ahead and said, when I was reading through this chapter on free associations and politics and the newspapers and institutions and all the rest, I couldn't help but think right, that Tocqueville's exemplar as the individual who might combat individualism was none other than the great 18th century Ben Franklin. Right, who's part of uh, this newspaper and associations and institutions? He's, you know, he's the, he's the type of individual who loves liberty, but he also loves getting to the fray and making the case for liberty. So I thought that was a really kind of keen observation uh, on Mike's part. Um, we 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 need we need more Ben Franklins uh, in New Hampshire. Well, we need more Ben Franklins anywhere. What, what do you think of this, Matt? Yeah, the great organizer, right? I mean, uh, you know, you go through the the list of things that he founded, the first of. And they're under all these civic-minded public building institutions, one after another. You know, keep people informed. Uh, and and there's this idea that's pervasive in the founding that that you've got to have an educated people to be a self-governing people. Educated in terms of virtue, they have to be habituated toward proper action. But educated in, in history, educated in politics, they don't have to all be classical scholars, you know, Ben Franklin's an amazing scientist, right? A world-renowned scientist in his day. But he's also poor Richard, who's got this proverbial wisdom that is just helpful for the average person who's trying to be industrious and frugal and get along on the world. And, and how do you how do you go ahead and do that? And he's not he's not somebody who looks down like so many of our elites today on the average American, right? One of the striking features of 18th century America is that the the, the two great minds of that period are Franklin and Jonathan Edwards, right? Figures that have reputations throughout the European and American world and are still widely read and, and studied today. And yet, you know, Edwards is, is the person most associated with the Great Awakening along with George Whitfield, right? Cares for the community in that way. And, and Franklin is the great organizer. So it's an elite that, that loves uh, the common and wants to elevate that group to being worthy of the self-government that they're they're working together to establish. Well, you've nicely telegraphed the uh, great chapter in this part titled "How the Americans Combat Individual Individualism by the Doctrine of Self-Interest." Well understood. That's an important phrase. The doctrine of self-interest, well understood. And this this great paragraph, and you you read it, and you can't but read Franklin into the paragraph saying exactly what you just said, self-interest well, well understood is a doctrine not very lofty, but clear and sure. It does not seek to attain great objects, but it attains all those it aims for without too much effort. As it is within the reach of all intellects, each seizes it readily and retains it without trouble. Poor Richard's Almanac, right? All these sayings, right? A penny, a penny saved is a pay, penny earned. Uh, going on, marvelously accommodating to the weaknesses of men, it obtains a great empire with ease and preserves it without difficulty because it turns personal interest against itself and to direct the passions, it makes use of the spur that excites them. It's just wonderful, wonderful uh, paragraph that embodies that 18th century commercial uh, virtue. Yeah, and it's not to say that virtue isn't good for its own sake. It's not a, re a rejection of that view. But what is that kind of virtue that is accessible in a democratic sense? Think about, we've, we've quoted John Adams 
thoughts on government a couple of times already this season. And as he gets to the end of that piece, he talks about the kinds of virtues that are inculcated in a democracy. And it's the same kind of ones that Franklin's talking about. These are, these are things that, that make a person orderly in their habits, that make them a useful citizen, a good neighbor. Uh, and it may not be the highest expression of the highest virtues. You know, we depend ultimately on the work of the Holy Spirit to, to, to bring out the fruits of the Spirit in individuals. But, but there's some civic-minded virtues that can be encouraged through public engagement, through the kind of institutions that, that Franklin and others were quick to found and to get people involved in. Yeah, and I couldn't help but laugh, right, because you mentioned you know, it may not be virtue for its own sake, but you know, it's, it definitely has an ally or is an ally or could be an ally uh, to uh, religion. And this is the next chapter, how the Americans apply the doctrine of self-interest well understood in the matter of religion. And I couldn't help you mention Whitfield earlier, and there's this great story that the historian Walter McDougall tells of Ben Franklin working with Whitfield. And Franklin was happy because he could make a buck marketing Whitfield as a speaker. And Whitfield was happy because Franklin would get him that audience that, that he needed. So it's, it's, it's interesting how uh, these two things aren't antagonistic to one another. Now, there's a danger there, right? So we can move up to the 1950s where uh, President Eisenhower famously said, right? I don't care what religion Americans believe in. I just want them to believe in one, right? And that's, this is where, you know, it becomes um, so utilitarian that it loses uh, its essence. Uh, but here Tocqueville at least sees a way that these two things could work together against something that's very dangerous. We're not out of the woods, however, for Tocqueville. And I think Tocqueville realizes that uh, self-interest well understood could be easily corrupted uh, into self-interest wrongly understood. So he spends the rest of this part of the work uh, talking about the love that Americans and democratic peoples have for material well-being. And I, and I think a great danger here, Matt, if I went back to this kind of X, Y axis and, and graph is that if all we care about are the material things, we're not going to seek the higher things. We're not going to look toward those transcendent things that provide a proper perspective or context for our lives. We're just going to be reduced to the things that we want and getting the things that we want. And, and I'd end my assessment here by saying, if we only care about material well-being, we may be able to have more stuff as we move forward in history but are we truly free? Are we liberated human beings or have we become enslaved to material well-being? And enslaved to material well-being, are we more easily made servants of the powers that be rather than free men and women? That's, I think, the interesting part of this because I think we often associate uh, overemphasis on material goods with, say, conservatives or libertarians, people that are uh, free market types, uh, but actually, that's not really how it works, I think, in, in the real world, that often those that are most committed to materialism are individuals who want security in, 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 in material things. And so they look to the government to provide that. And one of the, the, the dangers that de Tocqueville warns against is if, if you love material things so much that all you desire from government is order, then, you, then you're already a servant. You know, you, you, you've already been subjugated because... You've, you've been willing to 
prostrate yourself before any government that can provide the, the, the stability and the goods that you crave. And so that actually doesn't lead in the direction of freedom, not, not just in the sense that you're talking about this is highest freedom as an expression of your full humanity, but even in a very political sense, you're not going to get limited government. You're not going to get self-government if you're so committed to material things that, that the provision of those things, when the government you know, sends that $1,400 check right, for every person in your household and you're, you're, you're eager to cash that check and wait for the next one, is, is that really the pathway to freedom? Or is that the pathway to, to servitude? So in a democratic age, uh, he says that the greatest danger is that we living in a, a democratic time will believe that all is nothing but matter. Uh, so this is a, a theme that's gone through our coverage thus far of Democracy in America and, and plays itself here, out here in the things that, that we love. So it's, it's interesting, Matt, when we pivot to the adjacent reading for this week, which is uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, that you see in Hobbes and his political philosophy, almost kind of the antithesis to what Tocqueville is arguing here. I mean, Hobbes, of course, is writing a couple hundred years earlier, but he actually claims, right, that all men are equal, but equal in their depravity. Uh, he Speaking writes of materialists. Exactly, right? Chap chapter 13 of the natural condition of mankind as concerning their felicity and misery. Nature hath made men so equal in the faculties of body and mind as that though there be found one man sometimes manifestly stronger in body or of quicker mind than another, yet when all is reckoned together, the difference between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which another may not pretend as well as he. Now, that's written in English, a different type of English, hard <laughs> to read. But let's translate what he's suggesting here. Uh, he's suggesting here that there is an equality among mankind, but that equality doesn't lead toward communion. It doesn't lead toward association. It doesn't lead toward the proper use of thought and speech so as to build up civic associations, political institutions, and so on. It leads to war because being equal with one another, of equal ability with one another, we're, we're also in an equality of what we hope for, what we want, what we desire. So from that equality, there's a production of competition between us, anger between us. Uh, this famous expression comes from the same chapter that at the end of the day, the end result of our equality is a life that is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And of course, we know that the title of Hobbes' work is Leviathan. And what is Hobbes going to make the case for? He's going to make the case for a sovereign authority that keeps the peace among an equal people that cares simply for their material enjoyment. And what I see here, right, is, is kind of the culmination of what a Tocqueville would fear. You had an earlier pyramid, right, in the um, er earlier Middle Ages where there were those who were haves, right, who may have been able to live and, and exercise their liberty, but there was the great multitude, right, that had to live for the other. So that medieval uh, pyramid, but do we replace a medieval pyramid where there are few haves and many have-nots? with a modern democratic pyramid uh, where you have the Leviathanic state that is parceling out the goods, 
for that multitude of men who simply care about their material well-being. And one of the things that I think connects this to the observations on equality is that if, if we're equal in the way that he says, and we have this selfishness and self-centeredness that's central to our character, then Hobbes argues that we're all equally fearful of everybody else. We're all equally endangered. And so it's only by having this imposing power above us that we can be secure. So, so security has to be the top-down construction. It has to be something that, that's imposed by powerful forces that simply dictate terms to us. Whereas in de Tocqueville, the solution to our, our fears and our troubles is a bottom-up Right, draw people into the public square, get them to associate through various groups and civic associations, even if they're not explicitly political, you begin to build the habits of citizenship, the habits of, of self-government. All right, well, with that, we're going to turn to the headlines. And so as, as we try to build upon these two models that we've been given by de Tocqueville and Hobbes, in de Tocqueville, we can see how local self-government in both an explicitly political sense and a broader civic sense can produce a publicly spirited democracy amidst the competition and change that democratic societies bring about. Whereas in Hobbes, we see the same equality that produces individualism and its political counterweights in democratic society, joined with an untamed selfishness produces a war of all against all that can only be overcome by a powerful state. So, so if, if this is the two models we have available to us, we want to think about how this applies to some of the public policy debates of our own day. Uh, and one of the interesting features of that recently passed COVID relief bill, that $1.9 trillion bill, which included the, the, the checks as well as support for state and local governments and a whole bunch of other things, was that any state that accepts federal funds cannot use them directly or indirectly to lower taxes. And this is true all the way through the year 2024. So basically, if you take that money, you're saying you can't apply that money in a way that directly or indirectly leads to tax cuts for the next three years. And so there were some questions naturally that arose over that at the state level of various attorneys general who, who were saying, no, wait a second, are, are you trying to dictate to us that we can't actually cut taxes for the next four years if we take this amount of money that, that's been designated for our particular state in this bill? And the Treasury Department tried to uh, settle that matter by, by saying that the states are free to make policy decisions to cut taxes, but they can't use the pandemic relief funds to pay for those tax cuts. Now, of course, the challenge is what does that mean, right? What, what, what uh, I mean, money is fungible. And so you know, you've got money that comes in that pays for certain expenses of that state government. Otherwise, you have to pay with other funds for that. And so that leads to a surplus, let's say, right? More funds than you, than you need. At that point, may you cut taxes? It seems like the answer is no, because that would seem to be an indirect application of that payment to cutting taxes. In which case, what the government's essentially saying is that, that we're going to privilege spending right, over returning money to the people. You get $5 billion from the federal government, you've got to spend it, and you've got to spend it on the things that we designate. But you also, in a sense, have to spend all the other money that's coming in, because if you use this money from the federal government to offset expenses that you otherwise have as a state, we're not going to allow you to give money back 
to the people of your state. So there's there's obviously policy questions on this, and you can you can see how uh, a, a blue Congress is trying to put a, a few drops at least of of blue dye into those red state budget solutions and all this. Uh, but there's also constitutional questions, and so there was a a lawsuit filed actually by the Attorney General of Ohio, uh, Dave Yost, uh, last week in response to this, challenging it on constitutional grounds. And he, he wrote an article at National Review in this last week. He kind of laid out his case. And um, basically looking at the constitutional history on this, where the Supreme Court has ruled that a, a relatively modest inducement to adopt a certain policy is allowable. You can the national government can tie money to policy changes if it's if it's a modest tie that you could imagine a state being willing to, to turn it down. But if it's acting as if there were a gun to your head, right, where, where some major initiative is demanded by the government in exchange for taking federal money, well, then that's a case where the Supreme Court has argued the federal government has gone too far. You remember, Dave, we've 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 written about this in the past. Um, there was a case some years ago that the poor children of Connecticut almost lost their chocolate milk because the Connecticut legislature was afraid that if they didn't ban chocolate milk, they were going to lose some of their federal school lunch money. And the heroic governor of Connecticut vetoed that bill and saved the chocolate milk. But but this is a common practice that the national government has adopted. And while this isn't exactly Hobbesian Leviathan, right, it certainly is a top-down approach to legislating. And you think about it, an issue of whether you're going to have chocolate milk at lunch or not, j- just the kind of thing that we would think most Americans, most people in general are competent to decide for themselves. And yet we have the federal government telling the states to tell the people just what they're going to have with their sandwich. Yeah, it's really the reverse of the Declaration of the Independence, right? Because what it's trying to produce is dependence. That's the end game of the policy, dependence from the states upon the national government, and in, in this case, dependence upon the people. Are these checks going out upon the national government as well? And the more dependent we become on the national government, the more that it becomes kind of the, the parlayer of, of our existence and, and the less likely we are to challenge its authority, which is really a reversal of the earlier American understanding of the relationship between the national government, the states, and the people. It was hopeful, right, that the states within a certain jurisdiction would remain independent and that having independent people would also be a good thing. But now everything has to fall under kind of the same uh, umbrella, which is, I think, uh, short term speaks to uh, some people's immediate needs, but longer term does not bode well for the health of the country. And I think one of the carry out effects of this is the way that it demoralizes self-government. So you think about for the average person, what does self-government really mean? Well, of course, every four years you vote for president, every two years you vote for members of Congress, but your vote is one among millions for these offices. And there's not really any meaningful sense in which your vote is likely to make a difference. But on the other hand, you get involved in local government, you can make a difference. You can run for local offices, you can pass around petitions, you can organize groups, you can go to that school board meeting, that zoning board meeting, you can have a say, you can have a voice and you can see the, the real impact of that. But what if it's all a farce? What if, what if you have the big debate about school lunches and then all of a sudden the national government says, yeah, but no chocolate milk, right? How long does it take before people get it? 
and realize, okay, so what's the point of me being active in that local civic association of, of showing up at those meetings? Because wh whatever decision we make is only provisional until the national government comes in with money, until people bow to the latest mandate or demand. And so over the course of time, not only do you have the, the loss of liberty associated with the policy, whatever the policy is, but you lose the habits of self-government and the kind of cynicism that emerges in consequence of this, where you say, oh, what's, what's, what's the value of this? I might as well retreat back into that individualism that Tocqueville's worried about, where I just focus on my circle of friends and, and you know, my material life. Um, that I can control to a greater degree, but political life just seems uh, pointless because my decisions, my agency are not actually meaningful. And another great problem here, Matt, is that 1.9 trillion is not being divided among the 340 million Americans equally, right? There's money that goes to some of those 340 million Americans, but there's also money that goes to the friends of the regime. So, yeah, if, if you're a chocolate milk producer, uh, you're probably not doing well in that case. But if you make wheat pasta or something that goes in line, I think that was the example That's that was, was used in that case right. was wheat, wheat yeah. pasta. Yeah. If you're a wheat pasta producer, oh my goodness, you're you're doing well by that bill, and you can kind of see that you know, green energy is going to do well moving forward. There's certain industries, certain sectors of industries that are pre-selected or chosen by the regime, and there's funds channeled towards those industries. So the, the friends of the regime are benefited. So uh, certainly it produces dependence among the people, uh, but it also produces uh, this kind of uh, oligarchy uh, that is very, very dangerous. And of course, then we bend economic life toward those funds, right? And speaking of which, uh, there's another $3 trillion that are being talked about for a new spending bill. Now we have to keep the numbers, which are difficult uh, to, to comprehend in mind here. So the normal federal budget these days is a little bit under $5 trillion, believe it or not. I remember when it was one or 2 trillion, but anyway, it's, it's 5 trillion now. But this is not budget. So that 1.9 trillion that was a passed a couple weeks ago, that's not on the budget. This 3 trillion that I'm talking about now, that's not on the budget either. So we've sort of said, well, we got a $5 trillion budget, but we're also gonna add another 5 trillion on top of that in new spending, uh, occasional spending, not necessarily spending that just going to fold into the budget, but now $10 trillion in a single calendar year we're talking about, where federal revenues, by the way, are somewhere around $4 trillion. So that's, that's $6 trillion of deficit in, in one year. Matt, and the cost of World War II alone in the United States in today's dollars was $4.1 trillion. I don't think we're going to get quite the same bang for our buck, uh, literally or figuratively. What's in that $3 trillion spending? Well, this is still being negotiated and being worked out. Even the price tag itself is being worked out. But uh, about a trillion dollars right now is being earmarked for infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail lines, electric vehicle charging stations, cellular networks, these sorts of things, right? So this is, this is the Green New Deal in infrastructure terms. And then a second component of this, uh, without a price tag that I was able to discern or, or discover, is investment, so-called, in free community college and universal pre-K and paid family leave. So the idea here is right now you've got more or less from first grade through 12th grade, public education, free public education, some places that includes kindergarten. This takes you back to age three and then tax on two years of community college after that. Now, obviously the funding for this, the $3 trillion as, as expansive as that is, 
will not pay for that indefinitely, right? So there's either going to be new federal funds added to the budget or new local funds and state funds will have to be incorporated to keep this free pre-K and free community college going. So another shift in the direction of greater spending and of course, another shift in the direction of, of the government uh, being engaged in long-term education of the individuals of the community. So the Californication of the country, right? The United States made California writ large. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's uh, and and you know New York has dabbled in some of these things as well. And so, yeah, it's the it's the blue state victory being extended over over the nation. Well, I'm sure we'll be circling back to this because uh, that that bill at least has not been approved. And it may be in fact, one of the ones that triggers the end of the filibuster to get back to our earlier conversation. Uh, But in the meantime, we're gonna shift our focus a little bit and open the gray book. Since we're already four months past the last presidential election, it seems like we ought to start talking about the next one. And and certainly from the standpoint of our ratings on our our downloads on the podcast, uh, nothing got more attention than our discussions of the presidential race. So we've learned our lesson. And so we, we can't drift too far away from that. Uh, there was an interesting set of poll numbers released by Echelon Insights on Wednesday, uh, looking at the Republican side. Now, obviously, the, the, one of the points of news from the press conference yesterday from Joe Biden was he does plan to run for re-election in 2024. So the question is, who's his Republican opponent? And, and obviously, the, the elephant in the room is, is Donald Trump. And, and so the first question they asked is, would you vote for Donald Trump if he was running again, or would you want to vote for somebody else? 60% uh, in the most recent numbers would be in favor of supporting Donald Trump, and 30% somebody else. That's definitely or probably on, on both those sides. Okay, so, so he's clearly the preferred candidate for Republican primary voters at this stage. But then they said, okay, but let's, let's take him out. If he doesn't run, then who would you support? And there, it was interesting. You had, you had two candidates that were the strongest, uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, governor of Florida, and then Mike Pence, obviously uh, the vice president under, under President Trump. Uh, 17% for DeSantis, 16% for Pence, and then next was Ted Cruz down at 5%, and it goes down from there. So really, two people that have a significant uh, constituency at this point as an alternative to former President Trump. One further point, which is interesting to kind of set this whole thing up. They asked people, now, are you, are you mostly a Trump person or mostly a Republican person? Which, which of those is, 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 is more of the priority for you? And it was almost an exact even split among Republican-leaning voters where they would say, well, I'm more of a Trump person or I'm more of a Republican, a party person. And so then when you looked at those candidates, okay, connecting back to those two leading candidates, Ron DeSantis had 26% support from those Trump first people. So he's the, the first choice at the moment, at least, of people that would want President Trump if he doesn't run. Uh, only 10% of those that favored the party over, over President Trump. On the other hand, Pence had 12% of those Trump first Republicans, but 22% of the party first. So you've kind of got two lanes that they're defining here, where DeSantis is the leader of of the Trump side of the Republican Party, and Pence is the leader of everybody else. Well, Matt, this this lines up nicely with my neighborhood, Rocky Ridge in Canyon Lake, Texas, probably 120 houses in our neighborhood. 
uh, we are 97% Republican, 3% Democrat. So it's a very evenly balanced uh, neighborhood. <laughs> but, but in reality, right there, most houses had a Trump sign out in September, October, or November. Right now, about two thirds still do. Okay. So it can, I mean, it really it lines up with these numbers well, which is why I think what I need to do is, is put my guy's sign out there, Tucker Carlson, Carlson 2024, on my lawn and, and see what some of my neighbors do. Will I, will I get egged? Will it be like, ah, I like Tucker, but he's not Trump. But I, I think, you know, that it's, it's interesting here. This list is, is terrific. Yeah, he's sitting at 4% Tucker on the Trump first side and 5% on the party first side. So, you know, for a, a talking head, that's not too bad. So what we're going to do, it's a long setup for, for the grade book. But what we're going to do is, is grade the prospects of Donald Trump, uh, DeSantis, and Pence as, as the three leaders at this point, uh, possible 2024 candidates. What are, what, how would you grade their prospects for being the Republican nominee in 2024? Let's start with Trump. It's got to look like an A right now. I mean, I'm sure he can always bring that grade down, but that 60% is is pretty remarkable, especially when you compare it to those you know who identify with the with the Republican Party. And I get why you wouldn't want to identify with the Republican Party. I mean, I I don't get why you'd want to identify with Trump, but you know he's he's looking pretty good right now. Well, interesting that it's it was 48% that were in favor of Trump in January. It's up to 60% now. Is it a coincidence that coincides with two months without social media? If he, if he stays quiet, does that secure him the nomination? You wonder. I think you take that apprentice concept, right? That television show, and you mix it with choosing primary candidates across the country. <laughs> and every week you like, this has actually happened, right? This past week where the four Ohio Senate candidates went down kind of in uh, uh, President Trump's boardroom and they each kind of begged him for, you know, listen, I, I bought you ice cream two weeks ago. I gave you 5,000 for your campaign. I've told everyone you're the best ever. And, and Trump kind of goes through the room and kind of uh, picks which, which one of his minions is going to be allowed to uh, get his support in that primary. You could run maybe two, three, se- maybe four seasons of The Apprentice just <laughs> kind of working on him picking primary candidates among people right? Who really want to be excellent lap dogs. Yeah. I, it seems like he'd be inclined at least to do that. And, and there might very well be a decent television audience for it. So I'm going to give him a, a, a B plus only because I think those numbers are, are a little bit soft and maybe uh, dependent upon his, his silence. And I think he's likely to break that silence over the months to come. How about DeSantis, Dave? He's popular at the moment. Can that sustain itself in a post COVID world? Yeah, I think it can. I, I just think he's got to be careful too. He's got to be his own person and um, he's in a very good position right now. And I think if he can just work on being a good governor rather than being the next Trump, then he'll, he'll, he'll be in a good position. But if he begins to be seen as someone who's bending around Trump's will, then of course, how presidential is that? Yeah, I agree. I think I'd probably give him a, a B. Look, Florida governor is a great place to run from certainly in a Republican primary. Everyone can, can see the Electoral College map and, and knows how important Florida is. And so if, if you bring that to the table, the prospect of a, of a victory in, in the important biggest battleground state, then that certainly ought to help your case. And, and, and he has genuine accomplishments to run on. 
So that leaves us with one more candidate, Mike Pence. I think he is in a good position as well. I think that uh, probably a better position that people give him credit for. I do think that he needs to make the case for a party that does not practice the way the Republican Party has practiced in the past, but a party that has not become the plaything of President Trump. And making the case, right, that I've bought into this on the, on the policy front, but on the personal front, um, this just went too far. So I, I think he's in a good position, like Santis, a B, B plus, uh, but he's, he's got to be a very bold and very strong in the way that he asserts himself, his own, his own man uh, moving forward, I think, to, to really become an A. I agree with that. I think that's that's about the right grade. And I think for him, the question is, how do you avoid being yesterday's news? Um, you know, you you had four years that in some ways, from a political standpoint, ended well for him. You know, the, the events of January 6th, I think, were shown a spotlight on, on his integrity in, in a way that, that would be politically advantageous for him. But that's not necessarily going to last indefinitely. All right, we wrap up the show each week with de Tocqueville's crystal ball. And we've been focusing on the NCAA tournament the last couple of weeks. It's March Madness time. We're beginning to draw near the end of that, but we can still get a few more picks out of that. Um, So last week we picked four games. Unfortunately, COVID prevented one of those from being played. Uh, But we both got Oklahoma over Missouri in the West in the 8-9 game there. And then I had UCLA upsetting BYU. You had you had BYU, so you lost on that one. And we both were fooled by Georgetown's Big East tournament run. Uh, Colorado beat them soundly. So uh, that that was a return to reality, I guess, for the Hoyas. Um, but we also found out from our previous show about a couple of our earlier predictions. So we had um, asked the question two shows ago, what would be the highest seed to lose? And you had said, Dave, a number two seed. I said a number three. As we know, a number two seed did lose, so you won that one. And then the other question we had was, how many of the eight, nine games would go to the eight seed rather than the nine seed? And the answer to that was three. Unfortunately, we both had two. So you do all the math and you add all this up. You are now, Dave, 16 and seven, and I am 10 and 13. 23 is not a number that sits well with me. So we're going to do three more games this week so we can get at least back onto an even number. Sweet 16, of course, being played Saturday and Sunday. First game on Saturday, we have the number five seed Villanova against number one seed Baylor in the South. Both been playing very well. Baylor is a seven-point favorite. Who do you like, Dave? I'm going to upset a lot of my neighbor friends by saying I think Villanova with the points is – who I think will win this not win this, but I think with the points, I think it'll be a close game. Yep. I agree. I think it'll be close. I think Villanova can win it, but I think, you know, a three or four point victory for Baylor is also very likely Villanova obviously has a lot of recent tournament success and experience. Not that Baylor doesn't, but I think you know, they're in a position to, to do something at the sweet 16 here. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. Second game, we've got number four, Florida state against number one, Michigan. Michigan's two and a half point favorite. Uh, Michigan's a little shaky in their second round game against LSU, um, but I guess a little shaky is better than every other Big Ten team, which lost. Uh, so I, 
I, in my bracket, went all in on the Big Ten. That was kind of one of the two rules I use, senior guards and Big Ten. And senior guards worked well for me. I, I've got a number of the upsets through my senior guards, but the Big Ten was a disaster. So I'm not going to be fooled again. I'm taking Florida State. How about you, Dave? Now, is this player Isaiah Livers, is he back or not? So that would be – I hadn't looked that up. Hold on a second here. Talk among yourselves. I think that Florida State pulls off the upset here. It doesn't look like uh, Michigan star Livers will be able to play in this game, at least from today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Florida State here. All right, so we're agreed on that one as well. Third game on Sunday, we have number seven Oregon <laughs> – against number six, USC. So Pac-12 matchup. USC is two and a half point favorite. They did meet once during the regular season and USC won 72-58. So can they do it again? Or does Oregon have enough to pull off the upset? I'm going to go with Oregon here. So I think that they will pull off. I think this will be a close game as well, but I think that they'll pull off the upset. One or two point game, Oregon takes it. All right, there I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to take USC. I'm going to go with history. And uh, they won by 14 last time. They can win by at least two and a half this time. Now, that should be the end of the show. But we have to recognize that next Thursday is opening day of baseball season. And so we've got to at least make our picks for the World Series. I have to do that at the beginning of every season. Now, last year, I got American League champion, National League champion, World Series champion, all correct. So I'm having a tough year this year, but I'm feeling good about baseball so, Dave, I want a, I want a nationally champion, American League champion, World Series champion. All right. We're going to see a repeat of the 1992 World Series. I think it's going to be a Braves-Blue Jays World Series, but this time the Braves win the World Series. Okay. Very nice. Going back to 1992. I'm going to take the Braves as well. I, I've, I've got the Braves winning the National League. Uh, I think that, you know the Dodgers will be great in the regular season, but – you don't win every time in the playoffs. I think the Braves have enough young pitching and enough offense to pull off an upset, maybe in the NLCS over the Dodgers. And I'm going to take the Chicago White Sox as the American League champion. Uh, I don't really care as long as it's not the Yankees. Whatever it is, it'll be fine. But but I think you know that that young lineup and also some good young pitching on Chicago. This might be the year that they that they get it done. All right, so. We'll see. Mark that down six months from now. We'll check in and, and see how we did on that one. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you as always for listening. Remind you to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And please be in touch. You can reach us through Instagram at Democracy in America Today and contact us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.